We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Today is Saturday, October 24th, 2015, and welcome back to The Truth Perspective, everyone. I'm your host, Elon Martin, and with me is co-host Shane Lachance. Hello, everybody. Joining joining us today on The Truth Perspective are SOT editors Meg McDonald and William Barbet. Hello. Howdy, everyone. Making a special guest appearance from the Behind the Headlines show, we have back with us Harrison Kelly. I'm kind of a, uh, hey, everyone. Uh, how, how does that actually I, work? I'm, uh, I'm from the truth perspective, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> currently on temporary hiatus, helping out on the Behind the Headlines, but I'm back. It's a split back reality that merged. And that sixth voice you hear wearing a Shea Guevara T-shirt in deference to the theme of today's show. I'm just kidding. He's not really wearing one. We have with us Mr. Neil Bradley with us, too. Good to have you on with us, guys. Good to be here. Thanks, Alon. Thanks. Thanks for having me. My, arm, my arms are sure tired from flying back to the States to, to do this show. <laughs> well, welcome. Today we're going to get into the topic of revolution and more specifically, revolution in the U.S. On the lips and in the articles of many observers and activists these days is the call for revolution in the U.S. With the federal government's propensity towards war and more war, with a highly dysfunctional Congress meeting the goals of high-powered money interests, and with a population of millions that has been increasingly disenfranchised, abused, and terrorized, The collective state of affairs in the U.S. has become near intolerable for all but the very few. Give me liberty or give me death, many are now saying. But what to do about it and how to do it? Though we do see the desperate need for profound change in how things are being run, how can this change be implemented? Who will do the implementing and what could take its place? As the saying goes, Lignotas nulla coratio morbid. Do not attempt to cure what you do not understand. Which brings us to the question, what would a constructive revolution consist of? And is one even possible now when it is needed most? Well, we thought we'd just kind of bring it down to the basics a little bit. And looking a little bit at uh, revolution historically and in its commonly understood definition, uh, Shane, you had uh, some information and some background on those two kinds of areas. Well, first of all, let me just ask a question: What is a revolution? Like, what do people think of when uh, when you mention the word revolution? If someone says they want to start a revolution, what do they mean? Any takers for that one? Oh, I think first it's, off, it's I mean, got to be. The... Go ahead now. I was thinking uh, an armed revolution. Taking up arms is the first thing that I think of. And you? Well, yeah, I was I was thinking along similar lines. It's um, 
I mean, it's a very Western idea, I think. Um, and, you know, it has all these sorts of ties with uh, power of the people and freedom and democracy. And I think, you know, that's just such a part of, I mean, it's almost like it's a part of the ide- ideology of, of the West itself. Um, yeah. I think of it as being a change of thought, a change of the way society is being uh, handled by the elites and an uprising against that. Yeah, so basically an uprising. You've got the people who are being oppressed. They feel oppressed as victims in some way, and they get together, they take up arms, and they storm the Bastille or they you know, storm Parliament or Congress or the White House and basically take the power back. So let's take the power back from the, the people who have taken it from us or abused it and start a new government, start a new a new way of living, right? So it sounds uh, sounds mm-hmm. all fine and good, right? So it's it's democratic, right? Because the people the people form the true democracy, and that's at least the image that I think a lot of people do have when either calling for a revolution or wishing for one or even just talking about one is that that's what it's all about. But uh, I guess the picture probably isn't that clear, and that's kind of a rosy, um, wishfully thinking kind of way of looking at it. So, I don't know, Shane, do you have any historical examples to kind of either back that up or contradict it? Sure. Yeah, well, I mean, that's 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 kind of the basis for when we look at um, the French Revolution, uh, France was living under the ancient re- or ancient regime, you know, for for many, many years. And yeah, that was a political and social system where it was pretty overt where the elite rolled over the people and you know in the years before uh there wasn't really any concept of uh you know the power of the people those ideas really emerged uh during the age of enlightenment and influenced i think the the french revolution and so you know these ideas that uh people can have power which i think you know is is a fundamentally uh good idea uh however you know how how things turned out in France uh shortly after uh the revolution started there was the the reign of terror or just called the terror and that was a period of you know, extreme violence uh you had tens of thousands of people who you know were were killed uh because they opposed you know what was going on or they didn't even have to oppose what was going on a lot of people you know just got caught caught in the crossfire so to speak um but you know the guillotine uh beheadings uh became you know pretty common um that was that became you know one of the symbols of the french revolution and it, it's just kind of ironic sorry yeah, head chopper are you saying that there were head choppers yes, in the french yes. revolution head choppers <laughs> the the french <laughs> revolutionaries were a bunch of head choppers and that's just that's just so ironic because you know you see the same uh, energies, the same manifestations uh, playing out uh, on the world stage today. Um, you know, it's not as clear as as it was in France. Obviously, the head choppers are the proxy forces of the United States today. Um, but you know that those energies are still emerging. Um, and you know, there's all sorts of um, paranoia of these foreign or internal. Um, uh, 
disruptors and you know the the paranoia was really really rampant uh during the time and so you know France went through all like you know all these years of 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 violence and you know eventually um gained some ground the new political uh class was was established you know there was the the left and the right you know really came to the fore and you know we can see uh, a lot of the how influential that was for the development of the west uh and in the United States i think you know it, it's not as commonly acknowledged but uh the american revolution you know a lot of the ideas um were um basically influenced to 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 manifest in the west as well in, in the american revolution um so yeah these ideas of um yeah, you know, what's the 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 slogan for the the French Revolution? Is um, liberty, equality, and fraternity. Um, another another version of that was uh, liberty, uh, equality, and brotherhood or death. And you know, you could think about that in terms of yeah, these people were so they they held these beliefs so strongly that they were willing to. Die, but you know, really, when you look at it, it meant, um, or you're going to die if you don't accept, you know, our version of freedom and democracy. And Napoleon, when when he came into um, when he came into power, it's it's really remarkable to see how he was going, you know, from country to country to country. You know, within a very short number of years, uh, he was just you know spreading. Uh, all to all these countries, you know, he either invaded, occupied, or threatened wars with um, the Ottoman Empire, Britain, uh, Egypt, Russia, Rome, Switzerland, Austria, you know, and and it, it goes on. So, you know, the comparison of that period with uh, what we're seeing now in just the U.S. has really overextended itself uh, and has showed its hand uh, in in its uh, just warlike nature uh, is, is, is becoming really apparent, and and that's really the um, I think the signal of you know a dying empire. Um, so you know, the, I just wanted to yeah that, that's kind of just the the summary of you know these this idea this idea of revolution uh, and kind of where it comes from and just how intertwined it is with. Uh, our belief in our thoughts on you know, free democracy and what they are, and how they're actually used and how they actually play out. Um, um, well, so are, are revolutions like ever really successful? Like, what would be a, a successful revolution if we were to, you know, because I. I, Elon, you've, you you told me you were telling me the other day that you were reading online, and there's a lot of a lot of people um, like alternative news writers and bloggers and commentators talking about uh, the need for an American revolution, a new revolution in the states. And um, so, can you tell me a bit about that? Like, what do they envision? What what would they think of as as a, a successful revolution? Like, what what do they want? Well, uh, a lot of them are making the the kind of um, 
you're kind of looking at what's going on right now in the U.S. in, in certain terms. Uh, it's falling too far towards the conservative uh, way of thinking, or uh, it's not um, it's not communist enough. It's not social enough. Uh, there, there isn't enough uh, balance economically, and um, all of these things are true as far as they go. Um, you know, I just did a little search on uh, on the SOT databank for articles regarding revolution, and there were two in particular that uh, were really quite accurate in, in kind of portraying a lot of the dynamics that are going on that are that are creating uh, these kind of intolerable conditions for most people, namely, you know, living under, um, you know, low living standards, um, having their services taken away, being on food stamps. Um, but they both don't go far enough in the direction of, of isolating what is the main problem. But your question, Harrison, was, was more in the, more in the way of, you know, um, what are they? What are they calling for? Yeah, and um, they never really get beyond uh, the call for overthrowing the government, as we were saying yeah. earlier in the show. Um, and the means of doing that um, is never really addressed. Yeah, I haven't thought that far ahead. <laughs> no. Well, the reason I ask is because um, if you think about it, like, what would you really want with a with a revolution, I mean, if I'm if I'm thinking about it and and you know trying to plan my own revolution, I'd think that first of all, you know, everything that's wrong with the government would have to be turned right, right? So okay, so we've got these all these evil power structures and we've got uh, um, all these tangled relationships between corporations and government and lobbyists and industries, and it's just there's this this kind of octopus of uh, um, of control, and so ideally, I think that that I, I, what these people, what a person who wants a revolution would want, is to get rid of this and replace it with something new. Now, what I don't understand though is that let's say that we do that, and um, okay, so we've got to basically take take down the existing power structure. Mm-hmm. Well, what does that entail? I mean, that power and that power structure uh, is not only all those evil things, but it's all a lot of stuff that actually, um, you know, makes things work. I mean, all of these industries, they and and connections. That's what makes the economy, you know, happen the way it does, and business, and um, just international relations and internal relations with, within the country itself, and how the how the cities relate to the states relate to the to the federal level there's just actually so much that goes on so is the idea to just strip everything away and then have something to bring in to replace it with or is it to just like take out uh, well is it even possible to just take out certain key figures and just replace put your own in there so that you can carry over what is al- what has already been going on before and have some continuity mm-hmm. of of government and um actual administration or just getting things done. And so it just seems to me that if you take out everything, there's nothing to replace it with. Now, this bring, this reminds me of what Putin has been saying about Syria, because one of the criticisms that, that you've been hearing 
from the Western mainstream media is that, well, first of all, Putin isn't targeting ISIS. He's ta targeting members of the of the moderate opposition, the guys that are actually fighting Assad that want to take take over the country and then make it a better place. So what Putin says in response to that is that, well, who are these guys? Do they have any kind of actual experience? Do they have any kind of um, like developed organization or structure themselves so that they could feasibly move in and just take over running the running the country, just take over the government and have some continuity? Um, and he's, uh, the obvious answer is no, they don't. Um, the guys running this revolution, or you know, color revolution, these rebels. They are just mercenaries. They're the guys on the streets just, you know, with guns, fighting people, killing people, killing either, you know, taking over cities, killing civilians, killing members of the of the Syrian Syrian army. So, like, well, that, that's precisely what makes the whole uh, so-called revolution in Syria so stupid. And what you're saying is just only basic common sense which seems to be uh, completely uh, absent uh, in the minds of the U.S. government and all of these other Western governments that are supporting the intervention uh, or rebellion or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but just getting back to your earlier question, um, you know, Paul Craig Roberts, who was part of the uh, Reagan administration, has recently been very specific about it. He says, round up, arrest, try, and then execute neocons, who he calls insane. So he's very specific. He, he doesn't go as far as talking about uh, industrialists, bankers. Uh, he just wants um, the warmongers. Mm -hmm. So anyone who has in some way made it apparent that they identify with what might be thought of as a neocon, a strategist or someone working in a think tank in Washington, yeah. round them up and execute them. Okay, uh, here's a problem right there he's going to run into. Let's say he's starting this. What do you think the, those who support him on the far right will do when they go, yeah, totally. And we know, Paul Craig Roberts, wink, wink, that when you say neocons, what you really mean is them Jews. Because that's the first thing that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. He's going to get the people in his ranks who are out to get the Jews. That's the, that's the first thing that can go wrong. Mm -hmm. And there you've got a classic repetition through history of the solution to all the problems in our society is the Jews, you must get rid of the Jews and everything will be fine thereafter. And that's had notorious consequences. And then going from that, if that's the scenario, you get, so who are the people basically running the revolution in that case? You get the anti-Semitic nut jobs who are just as bad as the neocons, who are Jews and non-Jews, and what is their government going to be any different? Look at what the, the U.S. was like before the so-called neocons took over. I mean, it was still um, something that I think a lot of the people today would want to take over and get rid of. I mean, the United States government has been a cancer for like the past 100 years, well, maybe um, specifically maybe for the past 50 to 60 years, in its worst, in its worst phase of disease, but mm -hmm. like so, so let's just identify the neocons and take them out. Okay, so first of all, you've got the problem. So how do you identify who is and who isn't exactly a neocon? Let's say we get a, get a list of names of these neocons. 
Now, okay, first of all, that's going to be a tough job because how do you exactly classify that? Are these just the people like the PNAC guys, you know, all their names are on paper and you know exactly who they are and what, you know, they're all part of the team. Do you have some kind of secret um, surveillance where you've figured out who all these people are and all the connections they have to everyone in government at every level? Um, are you going to take all them out? Like, um, mm-hmm. So let's say you, you get your list and you, and you take out and you arrest, try and execute all these so-called neocons. Okay, great. Um, isn't have you not thought through possibly that there are other really nasty people who aren't neocons that are still in government and who and have still been doing their thing for years and years and years and who have contributed as just as much to the problem? You know, the people that are somewhat ideologically aligned with the neocons but wouldn't necessarily be um, be associated with the neocons. Well, just to play devil's advocate, it's possible, um, maybe. Uh, Roberts was using neocons as shorthand for anyone who was implementing uh, a kind of global war on terror policy, mm-hmm. including sure. those people on the list for PNAC. But uh, you know, certainly when uh, when you mentioned you know like you know where does it end? Uh, mm-hmm. Neocon can also be shorthand for Jews in politics. Period. Yeah, and and it is ran by large swathes of people. When you go down that oh, road, ahead, you know, it, historically, when you go down that road, historically, you know, it never stops with uh, the initial uh, instigator or the initial, like, you know, it's not going to stop at neocons. You know, it's it's uh, it spreads to anybody who opposes you and anybody who, you know, you just maybe don't like. You know, it's, 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 it's like a cancer. Yeah, it reminds me of the McCarthyism era after World War II, honey, down the Soviets and <laughs> That's not a pretty picture. Exactly. But I think Vladimir. Um, I think Vladimir Putin uh, brings up a. I like the quote of the day that was posted on SOT. <clears throat> it kind of gets more to the heart of the matter, and I like to quote it here: Russia and the U.S. don't have any significant ideological differences, but we do have fundamental cultural differences. Individualism lies at the core of the American identity while Russia has been a country of collectivism. One student of Pushkin's legacy was formulated this difference very aptly. Take Scarlett O'Hare from Gone with the Wind, for instance. She says, I'll never be hungry again. This is the most important thing for her. Russians have different, far loftier ambitions, more of the spiritual kind. It's more about your relationship with God. We have different visions of life. That's why it's very difficult to understand each other, but it's still possible. I think he really touches on, you know, just what's the core of the of the problem here is the uh, American psyche is just in total tatters. You know, we've got all these um, all these problems like materialism, corporation, corporatism, consumerism, war, violence, the modern scientific um, worldview. You know, all these things do not help our condition. It, Keeps us in chronic fear, and from all the, and then of course everyone has to be medicated. So we are really suffering from like PTSD uh, manifestations. So you know, and we can talk about all kinds of revolutions, and, and but we really need to get down to uh, a cultural revolution, I believe. Yeah, interesting point. I'd like to. Um 
pick up on something you described in the introduction, Elan, and put it to you that maybe it's not so clear cut. You assume that the collective state of affairs in the U.S. has become near intolerable. Mm-hmm. We can argue about what near intolerable is, but let's say most people are at that point, a majority, for all but the very few. What if I put it to you that even though in real terms, in objective terms, conditions are intolerable for Americans, especially compared to how they were, say, just 10, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, what if most would disagree with that sentiment? Americans themselves. Mm-hmm. The suggestion I'm getting is that uh, uh, they're not really there yet. I mean, en masse, mm-hmm. you know? Right, right. Um, I, I would say that they haven't, right, that's exactly right, actually. Um, but everything is leading towards reaching that point of um, wanting to or having the desire of lashing out and uh, and crying foul. Uh, they've been so used to, like a like a frog boiling in water very slowly, uh, their, their conditions that we're only seeing these kinds of short spurts of, of resistance in the form of activism, in the form of, uh, you know, the Occupy movements, in the form of uh, people marching about Ferguson and, and the various other things. So I would agree with you, Neil. I would say that, um, you know, it, it, it really will have to reach an even more critical point. Um, but the very fact that uh, that revolution is on the is on the lips and in the words of of so many at this point just suggests to me that there is a a percentage of people out there mm-hmm. who really are um, awake and aware to just how bad things are and the inevitability of of how much worse they'll get. Okay, okay, I'll grant you that. Um, William was comparing. The, let's say the cultural or the national this national psyche between the U.S. and Russia. Um, I think Putin. That quote from Putin is in a certain context. Um, but it's interesting you mention Russia because we we were discussing it earlier this week, and what occurred to me was that in many ways what's happened in Russia in the last 20 years, certainly since Putin came to power, is a kind of revolution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's certainly a change. It's a reversal of direction. Anyone would agree with that. Um, I think the answer to our question, where would we seek a constructive revolution, is to be found there. Mm-hmm. Literally, yeah. some guy yeah. and some helpers did take the reins of power, but they did it so carefully. Mm-hmm. Oh, and it so took a carefully. lot of time. It, took it didn't time. happen overnight. Patience. Yes, absolutely. So yes, it would take someone like it would take Paul Craig Roberts's realization. Okay, I need a list of names here because this has gone on long enough. It would take his realization. It would take his determination. But it would take more than that mm-hmm. because for someone to actually neutralize. And not kill them because that actually mm-hmm. backfires against you. You you got to outsmart the oligarchs. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, that's so, a major distinction between how uh, yeah. with, with how Putin came to power and what he did with the oligarchs. You know, there were uh, Western oligarchs that were pretty much pushed out, but there were also others who did come around and say, yes, you know, Russia is being threatened, and you know, we need to kind of change tactics a bit in order for you know the whole country to to survive and 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 grow. And it is fundamentally different when you look at, you know, this idea of, um, you know, rounding people up and, and executing them versus uh, holding people accountable and also integrating those who you can uh, in with, you know, a, a new system where you can, you know, be, begin to build a, a, a genuinely uh, political uh, system that has you know, some like, discourse and, um, you know, uh, j- just a more realistic um, and human uh, organization. Um, and, and that's, you know, that when we get, when we start talking about, you know, rounding people up and executing them, you know, that, that's just going off course and you really rouse uh, the most base aspects of society, you know, when you start moving in those directions. Um, and that's, that's really what the United States does is it, it goes into countries and you know it builds up the nationalist movements um you know it, it taps into those types of people we saw in uh, ukraine and yugoslavia you know these these uh these nationalists these new nazis are you know given some amount of power uh financed and uh, etc and you know those are the forces that you know really um Kind of change the the atmosphere of uh, the the direction that that you know will be uh, will be taken, and you know and we do see that in the U.S. Um, in the last uh, you know just in the past months, with you know it's it's in, it's so interesting to watch how the U.S. Um, covertly you know does these things um, you know with Ferguson. And you know, building at the same time that they um, build up the nationalist movement, they're also really oppressing uh, other parts of the population and making just living uh, unbearable. And hold on, um, Shane. Can I ask you something, Shane? Sure. Uh, can I can I ask you? Um, Maybe there's more to what you said here. Are you suggesting that the U.S. government is covertly involved in Ferguson? Well, yes. <laughs> it's it's. Uh, you say that with certainty, uh, but go on. Well, yeah, I, that's. Um, I mean, with uh, George Soros and you know, his involvement in the, uh, you know, just the uh, the whole Ferguson. Uh, um, and and Black Lives you Matter, the, the fun- Black Lives Matter, yeah, right. I, I yeah. would caution that 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 is speculated. I don't think we can say that that's known with any fact. I mean, first mm-hmm. and foremost, there is every justification for people in Ferguson and black people across the United States and many others, non-black, to get acting the way they have done, which is substantially peaceful. 
mm-hmm. to say, no, we've had enough, even if they're not going to be able to say, yo, we're going to construct the revolution like so, their their voice uh, has value. They are not being fooled into a, a position where they have to do something. They have no other choice. These are the general circumstances. I would just be careful not to cast aside in one swoop the valid and justified reaction um, on the part of oppressed Americans like that, you know? No, um, yeah, that's, some that's, of the con- that's true. So some of the conditions, I, I'm reading today that they, they've had drones doing constant overflight of Ferguson. I think in mm-hmm. other cities as well, possibly Baltimore, since this erupted a couple of years back. I mean, the it's the stuff of the movies from decades ago where, oh, that's funny, it's in a movie, it'll never happen in real life. It's happening in real time, and it's worse than anyone could imagine. They're oppressed, they have grievances, and they're met with drones and complete abuse mm-hmm. and castigation by, for the most part, from their fellow citizens. This is what worries me, at least the status quo for now is that the majority of commentary I see um, from the general public, say, when it comes to articles or videos, the latest developments in Ferguson in particular or in other cities, is support for the government and uh, the most horrific abuse, just outright blatant racism against black people. Oh, they're all gangbangers. The looters, they just saw the chance to get something from the store, so they joined in the protest. And for now, the perception among, this is why I'm alarmed with, why I'm picking up on uh, the assumption in how we started this show, which is that most people see the problem, right? Well, no, unfortunately not. Mm-hmm. Not There are a lot of people, but we're not, we're not in a situation where you can say most. No. And what's really tricky about all this is, at least in other regimes, Soviet Russia, for example, everyone knew who the oppressor was. Everyone knew what his mottos and slogans and and the BS was. And with a wink and a nod, they could get by. Psychologically, they could be resilient and support each other, even in the face of actual physical harm. In the U.S., it's confusing. It's like because the oppressors use the language of freedom and democracy, Mm -hmm. and they justify everything on the basis of this is good for you. And uh, anyway, I just want to point that out, that it's what we should not, you know, we should be careful in... in, in, uh, Casting aside our, our fellows, yeah, who may be Jews. Yeah. Of course, they're Jews. They're angry or they're hungry in some cases. Um, no, I think that's a, that's definitely an important distinction, and I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I wanted to make a point to uh, what you were talking about early, Neil, about uh, Putin having his revolution there in Russia, and it is a great model. But Russia has a long, rich history. And he had that to tap into, into the uh, Russian psyche, to help him along with what his goals were trying, that he was trying to achieve. Where here in the U.S., it's 
completely a different matter. We have yeah. one convoluted history, and the American psyche isn't gelled into something like that. It was just a hodgepodge of all these immigrants coming over, and there's just no one ideal that people can look up to. Well, I think that in the case in, in a case like that, it really comes down to your PR, because I think that if there were an American Putin, he could probably very easily find the aspects of American culture and American history to get the people to rally behind and support. But that gets into the nature of the Putin revolution. Now, I want to get back to that in a few minutes. I just want to uh, first I want to go back to some of the things that we were talking about previously. Um, specifically the, the neocon, the anti-neocon revolution. So first of all, I just wanted to make one comment on that, is that first of all, it's a pipe dream. It's never going to happen, because who is going to be the authority that takes out the neocons? No one can do that. And the reason no one can do that is because they, this uh, secret government, this secret elite that has been ruling the United States and a lot of the world for the past 20 years or 15, 20 years and further back in different capacities to go back to JFK. Look what happened to JFK. JFK was the president of the United States and he got taken out. Who are you or who is there that is, go that is going to have the audacity to try to do something about it and to get away with it? Because the minute you try, you're, you're going to be taken out. I mean, that's the, the level of control and power these people have is that they, they have power and they want to keep it. And they're going to keep it, and because they have power, they have the ability to keep it. They are in control of this entire system, this security intelligence system that has the, the ability to identify threats like that and to prevent them from ever happening. Now, I wouldn't say that now that isn't necessarily completely true if we look at it from a world perspective, but just from the perspective of, let's say, the United States, you're not going to get some American politician or some grassroots movement that is going to be able to arrest and try and take out all the neocons. And if you do, it's going to be stage managed in such a way that it's just meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Because that's how revolutions tend to work, is that there's the people rise up against the, the, the people in power. The people in power say, uh-oh, you know, the jig is up. Uh, it's game over. So let's support this revolution and just make sure we get in again once the new government take, you know, comes in, and then it's just it's still us. That's the way these things tend to work. Or it's just, if it's not the exact same people, it's the same type of people. It's just another group of psychopaths that rides the coattails of the revolution and takes over, and you're left with, uh, you know, in a, in a few years or right, right away or maybe a few more years, you're back in the situation you started with. So basically this type of revolution is impossible. It's not going to happen. And so here we're talking about a revolution kind of from almost at the top. So some kind of people that are already in the system, they've got some kind of official power, maybe some legislators or some politicians that get it in their head that they can do something. It would probably be someone who's yeah in or been in the military. Yeah. And Well, I just want to interrupt you, Harrison, yeah, because sure. I, I do think that there's a, a kind of uh, another point that Paul Craig Roberts is making, separate from whether or not it's even possible to do such a thing, and I agree with you, it's not, it's not possible. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that they're... they're they're just to defend it. Um, but, you know, like, like the team during World War II who tried to assassinate Hitler, mm -hmm. for instance, who knew that the guy was stark raving mad mm -hmm. and bringing destruction upon uh, the, the world and itself. I think that, that uh, Roberts kind of recognizes this. 
I think he's tearing his hair out. Mm-hmm. And and I think uh, you know, yes, it's a it's a pipe dream. Yeah, certainly. Um, but I think that you know his his sentiment, what he's trying to communicate is, we are at the eleventh hour, basically, uh, or close to it, in terms of the amount of damage that these that many of these people have done, and that uh, you know something has. Yeah, has got to give. Yeah, something's got to be done is the sentiment, and there's a very real reason for that and a very justified reason, I think. Now, it's the actual uh, details that become the well, problem, right? Yeah, right. before that, though, the way you just described what Alain said is actually different. Yeah. Alain's positing something's got to give, and that's if you're looking at it in a systemic, objective way. But you've brought it back into subjective straight away to saying, well, what are we going to do? Well, hold on to two different things. I mean, if we're describing what can happen given the conditions, it's it's very different. It's, or it, there should be a distinction between that and, okay, this is what I see as a situation. What should I do now to ameliorate or to prevent it get, getting any worse, mm-hmm. you know? Um and really, that kind of discussion, what can be done, is something that only people with a lot of know-how and experience exactly. inside the structure exactly. can do. Mm-hmm. And so the pipe dream, so to speak, is that there will be a coup within the United States first. Mm-hmm. And that then attracts, or ideally lays the groundwork beforehand, attracts popular support. Mm-hmm. At that point, the game is lost for the current elite. Yeah. Um, I think it's a pipe dream because because of the, what you described there, this, the reality of how difficult it is for anyone. That was the, that was established with JFK's assassination yeah. for anyone to, to actually change anything from within. Well, except... Um, now, maybe we can get into the to Putin because I think that there I think that, that is a an example of a successful revolution from within. But there were important differences I think. Mm-hmm. So if we if we look at JFK and Putin, so where where did JFK go wrong? Well, because he was he was part of the establishment. I mean he was uh this rich um well connected guy who became president. Now the problem was is that I think, at least, is that he wasn't really part of the system. I mean, he, in a sense he was, but he wasn't really one of the... He wasn't part of the crowd that actually got things done. He was somewhat of an outsider in the sense that he was trying to combat them, um, you know, split the CIA into a thousand pieces, or however you put it. Now, a successful revolution from the States would probably have to come from within the CIA itself, to be able to know your enemy, essentially. Now, Putin came from the, from KGB, and he had access to people, presumably, and these powers, these structures of power that an outsider wouldn't. So he knew exactly how the game was played, and he had people who were very experienced and knew all the ins and outs of how this whole game was played. And it looks to me, you know, I don't have inside sources at the Kremlin or, you know, whatever. So I don't know exactly how it happened or, you know, everything that was going on behind the scenes. I don't think anyone really does in the in the public sphere. But what it looks like what happened is that it was this revolution from within the very power structure and with 
with all that access to to all of the um, you know technologies and intelligence and connections and what have you that that's kind of what made it possible. This is actually how it, it happens in general mm-hmm. in the modern era. The two examples I can think of that are kind of follow the same course are Colonel Gaddafi, who was in the military in Libya. Mm-hmm. The other one, I think Nasser in Egypt was also military. Then there's Hugo Chavez, mm-hmm. military also. So it, it's got to be some kind of coup, and then a revolution takes place after in which you yeah. get public opinion behind it. Um, so yes, Russia, the Iranian revolution didn't quite go down like that. But anyway, it's more complex there. The thing about the difficulty about comparing, though, with other countries is that the U.S. is sort of unique in that it's the hegemon, it's the center of power that goes far beyond its borders. Um, the, 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 the bleak short answer I have is that there will be no revolution. No American revolution? No American revolution. Yeah. However, I, I don't draw the line there and say, okay, let's end the show. That's, that's the answer. Good night, folks. Because that doesn't, that, that isn't the be all and end all of resistance, of changing perspectives, of changing your own life and affecting change in people you know. Because these things are constant. These things go on all the time. And these things do add up to greater things. So in that respect, I say there's no revolution out of Putin's Russia, mm-hmm. but there's no reason to not to just pack it in. There's, and by pack it in, I also include don't give in to the temptation to go with the first rabble rather who says, you know and then I know it, the only way out of this is to take up arms. Mm-hmm. This is the danger that if we just say there's no hope, People will either be provoked into violence or they'll be enticed. They'll be hooked by someone who says the right things and off they go. Well, I I think, Neil, that that, that's precisely what will happen. Uh, I I don't know that there may be anything like like an organized um, coup uh, or revolution from within. But, um, you know, listening to this, Listening to us discuss this, I was reminded of a, uh, Emil Zola's book *Germinal*, uh, where he discusses um, uh, you know, the French countryside, the coal miners who lived, I think, in the uh, early to mid 1800s, uh, around the time of the Revolution, the 1800s, if I have my timing correct, and how, you know, once they were enticed, once they were um, enticed is the wrong word, but once they saw an opportunity to uh, to rebel, uh, to revolt against the uh, the, the coal, coal miner owners, they absolutely let loose. Um, and there are depictions of, of people being torn apart physically. Um, so I do think that, you know, after an economic collapse, after conditions have gotten so bad, um, there will be a certain number of people who, for lack of control and perhaps out of desperation, will be lashing out at police forces, uh, will be lashing out at uh, at at the most obvious um, 
representatives of government and and doing a, a germinal on them. Um, how organized that'll be ultimately, how far it'll go into the halls of government, uh, who will be shaping it and who will be um, leading it uh, is another question, mm-hmm. I think. Absolutely. I'm reminded of the descriptions of um, the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, 1917, let's say, on through to the civil war that resulted, and really until Stalin, Stalin effectively instituted a coup that took it on a different course from where it was previously. But those first 10 years or so were, were utterly horrific. And you've got to understand, in, in Russia until relatively recently, this was, this was a taboo. The, the 1917 revolution had to be glorious because otherwise the, the subsequent ideological structure that the USSR was built on was for nothing. Illegitimate. Effectively. Um, but the Russians are coming around to realizing that they, no good came out of that whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It actually retarded everything in the country for a century. Um, and, you know, I just want to say quickly, it's yeah. so interesting that when Putin gave his UN speech, he specifically mentioned, uh, you know, the failed experiment of the Soviet Union in trying to um, in trying to export its ideas abroad. Mm-hmm. That, was uh, a, that was a hint to the U.S. with its yeah. whole democracy and freedom thing. And right. he was basically very coolly saying, Listen, uh, you want to learn from us? Yeah, we we went it. there. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's not ours. Well, that kind of brings up the question of, you know, if and when uh, the United States does collapse, you know, what comes after? Um, yeah, I I do wonder, you know, how much uh, Putin's coming to power had to do with the situation in Russia at the time of, you know, recovering from, still recovering from the collapse of uh, the Soviet Union. And, you know, the, just everything in in Russia, it was, it was, it was a nightmare. Um, there was so much chaos. Uh, there was, you know, and it, it, was, it was largely from the West trying to, you know, set up the structure within Russia. So you had, you know, all this conflict uh, there, and uh, you know, so that asks the question: if, if when things do break down, you know, is there some potential uh, for something new to be introduced? You know, I don't know um, with the United States, since you know these um, systems that we have, you know, are, are so ingrained, and and people don't see things now. Uh, like they did in the Soviet Union, you know, how things would play out. Um, but, you know, I think there is uh, something to uh, just the exposure of, you know, the, the psychopathic reality that, you know, uh, with with Putin, he, he's he's behaving in, in a, a real human way. And it's so, it, it's such a contrast to how the U.S. has be, been behaving and you know that kind of presents um an opportunity to people for people to see that that contrast uh i don't know uh how many americans will um especially with you know with, with our media um but as things mm-hmm. do really come about you know uh, i wonder how things will play out 
Shane, I think a lot. Um, when I said earlier that I'm dismayed by the, the overall tenor of comments with respect to internal issues in the U.S. and the lack of support for fellow Americans, uh, recently it's, it's, it's a different story on the international scene. I see even Americans just, when they do comment and express opinion, it's more on the lines of, yeah, Putin, Putin rocks. Mm-hmm. So maybe uh, if they're, you were saying, Neil, that the situation in Russia in the late 90s can't really be compared to the situation of the world hegemon. And so a revolution, whatever revolution was possible in Russia may not be possible in the States today. So maybe this revolution will be, is kind of going on right now or will happen. And it's basically maybe an extension of this Putin revolution because things are going on right now with this whole Syria thing like that. Mm-hmm. That was a game changer and that is changing people's perceptions. I think at the uh, guys, we have long caller on the line. Okay. Uh, we have Jonathan uh, on the line. Um, Jonathan, Hello. are you there? Yes, I am here. Hi, Jonathan. Welcome uh, to the show. Hi. Yeah, I'm, I'm, hi, I'm enjoying the. I'm enjoying the the show um, immensely, as usual. Um, yeah, very disconcerting that um, Paul Craig Roberts would. Uh, would say that you know it, it just he's he's pretty depressed about the entire system and um he just doesn't see any avenues of uh you know um of uh resistance that uh that develop and it looks pretty hopeless to Paul Craig Roberts and you know I I don't I think that's just in, it's insane to uh you know present this idea of like killing the uh, neocons because um. I believe that our, our, uh, the majority of people's minds are uh, just they're they're colonized, and we have a uh, a deep neo-colonial uh, imperialist uh, system of of values that are just like you know basically um, you know hard coded into uh, the uh, into our system. The ethics are uh, the ethics are just like totally retarded and deplorable. And the thinking is muddled, and um, and it really is a reflection of um, you know what what we have become as a, a culture and a people. Our our thesis um, really is just totally bankrupt, and um, the majority of the world just sees the bankruptcy of it, and um, it's not working anymore. So um, what what I would say is, uh, along with some comments uh, earlier. Is that really the, the system um, needs to, or not needs to? It's, it's going to totally, you know, fall apart, and there's going to be a huge amounts of tumult um, within the United States, and only after that will people be humble enough to uh, reassess and reflect. And um, because anytime you hear about this uh, idea of um, we need to go in there and, and get the bad guys out and like Assad, you know, for example, Assad, um, I was looking at some of Noam Chomsky's comments on Assad in Syria. And what, what struck me is that, and I used to read all of his books and all that, but he totally like internalizes the, the dominant imperialist meme that uh, Os- uh, Assad is a butcher. You know, he, I mean, my God, that Noam Chomsky 
would just internalize this without question is just really an indication of uh, that the intellectual the intellectual sphere within the United States is like on the progressive left is just you know pretty much just gone in my opinion. It's as muddled as most everything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I'm not saying everybody. There's people like Eric sure. Drinter and, and Mike Whitley um, that are just like – and Joaquin Flores, he's from the United States originally. You know, these are people that are thinking like clearly and critically. And I'm not saying that uh, Assad is with, without sin, if you will, but um, the context in which the whole thing developed in the uh, Arab Spring, the uh, United States definitely was part of uh, taking advantage of discontent within the country, and also uh, there's a, it seems likely that a false flag of uh, assassinations and snipers were used to uh, kind of move all of this forward. So for Chomsky not to incorporate that into his overall critique and assessment, wow, that's that's pretty pathetic. And then um, mm-hmm. Democracy Now!, Amy Goodman, the way she kind of like helped spread propaganda um, with respect to Libya is just like, wow. And then the same thing kind of happens with her their take on uh, on Syria. You know, it's just totally bankrupt. And um, I can't respect well, these people at all. Go ahead. Jonathan, I, I don't know if you know, but um, after 9-11, Komsky came out with a book on the subject, and he attributed uh, the entire event to um, to rollback, to uh, not to rollback, blowback, blowback, thank you. Um, and basically his, his thought was, so all of these terrorists responded because of all this you know, shit that the U.S. has been doing around the world. He didn't even question uh, the narrative. Um, yeah, yes, um, I, I noted that, and um, I believe that there's value in questioning the narrative to an extent. But my problem, my whole thing about the 9/11, it just it goes on and on the conversation and um, the the quote unquote real, you know. Uh, conspirators or adjuncts and all that. It's just a conversation that just goes on and on and on, and there's just so many different avenues. But the way he kind of uh, poo-pooed, you know, the questioning of the dominant narrative, um, I just think that was intellectually disingenuous. And also I would note that he kind of has the same opinion about the JFK assassination and it's like, oh, just just forget about all that. Just keep moving on, which I believe is a legitimate to the extent that w- people that want to see different reality, and um, you know, which we, which we can all live and develop and and be beautiful human beings. You know, if we become too bogged down by conspiracy, that's definitely an impediment. But to kind of poo-poo it and um, kind of like you know, kind of cast off anybody who, who devotes time into, you know, researching this and bringing it to light. I think it's just intellectually disingenuous. And um, so, but on the part of uh, Libya, um, Chomsky goes on to democracy now afterwards. And I haven't really, I've been doing research on stuff I've not really kept up on, but the fact that Amy Goodman and democracy now helped cheerlead and legitimize the, uh, the um, the invasion of Libya, and now we see what the result is. 
that Chomsky would go on her program and they they pat him on the back and you know praise him and they have like some jokes this and that. Um, it really really Chomsky is uh, in my estimation has just really. Um, I don't know what to say about it. I've lost a huge amount of respect for the guy, and um, it just goes to show that whenever you kind of lionize one thinker, you know, um, like Chomsky here in the United States, if you don't take this guy to task for his what is the last thing he said about current events, if you don't take him to task for it, you know, the whole the whole quote-unquote progressive left has kind of led down a, a path of irrelevance and um, – the situation in Syria, he's made remarks that, you know, that that um, totally, you know, say that, you know, basically equate Russia, Russia's moves in Syria with the United States, that it's just not going to help and all of that. Well, it's totally freaking bankrupt. And mm-hmm. um, so anyway, I think I think that's that's something I've been studying as of late that is notable on who among these people that are that are luminaries among the the left progressive thinking class, you know, buy into this the the core memes and propaganda that align with uh, the United States uh, imperialist goals in the place, and and people that just unquestionably call Assad a dictator and this and that. Oh, and if they mention Putin, they're like, oh, I don't I don't really like the guy, and I, dude, you. you like, there's so much, like, misinformation about Putin out there that if you don't really dig deep and say, hey, is it really true that uh, Putin did this or did that? If you do research, you find that these, um, you know, that this these impugning Putin on a lot of these points that these thinkers present is on really based on very sketchy uh, kind of, like, facts that are, like, have any cogency whatsoever – so, I, mm-hmm. but lastly, I would say this: um, I believe that Putin represents a huge change um, in the world. In that, his um, his recognition of spirituality and collective good as being a component of the decision making, the goals, and the governments, the governance, and uh, moving forward with with other nations, this presents a thesis that just in its its very basic explication shows that the United States thesis is just totally bankrupt. There's so many lies behind it. And um, this situation with Syria, with the United States backing freaking terrorists, you know, just really just fanatics, just so they can get their regime change, um, it's just really just like just it's just blatant. It's just transparent, and um, so I think that what we're seeing is the development through Putin and Russia as a a new thesis that is totally going to is is discrediting the United States imperialist dogma, and um, you're just going to watch the uh, just watch this unfold, and hopefully it doesn't. Uh, you know, hap- happen to like on the nuclear Armageddon scale, but you know, you're going to watch a lot of hand wringing and just like just totally bonker type of uh, analysis on the part of uh, the the people that support the West, whether they're on the, mm-hmm. the left 
or the right, and it's it's kind of enjoyable to watch, but it's sad that really we don't solve problems here in the West. You know, everything just gets freaking worse, and um, it's just totally bankrupt. And I, I think we can see this through the, a lot of the the best thinkers on the quote unquote left progressive that they're just they're totally, um, in my opinion, complicit with the imperialism. You know. Except, you know, save for some exceptions like Eric Gracer and others that seem to be thinking more clearly. So anyway, thank you for letting me comment, and I look forward to listening to the rest of the show. All right. Thanks, Thanks for your call, Jonathan. Uh, Take we, care. This way. Thank you, Jonathan. We actually have another caller uh, waiting on the line, uh, Kent from West Virginia. Kent, are you on the line? Hello, Kent. Are you there? Uh, I don't know if uh, our connection got lost. Kent, are you there? Hey, Kent. You're on. You're on the air. Oh, well, let's see. We'll, we'll see you in a couple minutes if Kent's Yeah, there. try and call back, Kent. Okay. Maybe the line okay. drops somewhere. Yeah, Jonathan, again... Has hit the nail on the head. He's on a roll. He's on a roll, yeah. Uh, an official radio uh, kind of extra here. Yeah. Um, I didn't know that Chomsky was also doing that, sort of equivocating Russian airstrikes in Syria with just an extension of or another form of what the U.S. is doing there. I'd heard that once to date from David Swanson, who's another left progressive commentator. I think he's American, too. He's a guy who has the 10 Downing Street website. Uh, he's been teaching great. He's been anti-war, you know, speaking out against imperialism since I can remember. But he writes this article, and he says, but hang on a second. Russian bombs, U.S. bombs, doesn't matter. God. So Chomsky's doing the same thing. Um, yeah, I can't, as uh, Jonathan's explained, it's a completely redundant narrative. It's not taking stock of the reality of the situation. That's that's a short answer. Um, right. And I mean, this, this has been a point that's been made, uh, I think, on both shows, uh, which is um, the awareness uh, that's being created uh, by Putin's Russia right now in in bombing the head choppers, um, you know, and just how quickly and effectively he's taking care of this problem is an is an example to all the world uh, that the U.S. really had no intention of of trying to solve the ISIS problem. It is the ISIS problem. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't think that can be stated too many times. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, if I may be so bold to say that uh, Putin is presenting a revolution in thinking. Um, he's uh, mm-hmm. presenting another view of the world and another way of uh, showing compassion and, uh, and collectivism. And he's offering a choice to the whole world, you know, either align with us, with our kind of a vision, or stay with the West's um, pathocratic vision. You're either with us or you're with the terrorists. It's brilliant, actually. He's using their narratives against them. 
Right. And at the same time, he's still extending a, a diplomatic hand towards the West and saying, look, uh, if, you, if you're sincere about fighting these people, share your intelligence with us. And what are they saying? Uh, no. <laughs> Just wait. I'm going to inter- interrupt you guys there for a second. We've got another call. This is Lee from Rancho Cucamonga, California. Apparently that's a real place. Um, so <laughs> I've never heard of it before. Lee, are you there? Yeah, can you hear me? Ah, yes. Yeah, we can Welcome hear you. Hi, Hi, guys. I called you last week at the end of the show when I talked to you guys toward the end. Um, so um, well, welcome back. you guys. Yeah, I'm, I'm coming back from a, a concert last night. I'm on the freeway, so I have some time to chat. So cut me off whenever I get too long in the tooth. Um, I kind of wanted to, All right. if it's okay with you, segue a little bit. This, this was on my mind recently. Um, I did a show yesterday, and I want to talk about, well, first of all, just for the record, I think Putin is a very calculating uh likes to push Obama and and posture uh, posture his country and his leadership by, for example, you know, interfering with bombing. And, I mean, it, this is just like a, a pissing contest to me. And, and Obama is not falling for it, you know. And the right is really pissed to say that, you know, we're always they're always characterizing our country as weak. You know, the hawks are never satisfied. You know, when they wrote the letter uh, where Cott, Senator Cott put his name on it. I mean, these guys just want to go to war. They want to engage in a uh, dangerous game plane, uh, like putting, a, you know, air, airspace restriction on Russia. What's that going to do but... but you know, lure them into what could possibly be, you know, a military uh, uh, theater war. So um, I'm not at all in favor of, of of posturing or doing anything in the way of um, uh, engaging with dangerous activity. Rubio said he would uh, put, you know, restrictions on airspace. So, I mean, it just it just really baffles me how, uh, the conservative right, the extremist hawks, just think so uh, casually about war, you know, and uh, that's what they've said about Iran. You know, let's just, you know, this is too soft of an agreement, even though it's not a bilateral agreement. And of all people, Russia is is one of our allies of the P5 plus one, but that's not good enough for them either, you know. We, I guess we've got to go decimate all their facilities. And it's just frustrating to deal with that kind of hawkish, you know, their kids aren't serving. Their kids are not in arms way. So that, that's, that's my first long point. But I, I'll listen if you have any responses about that. All right. Thanks, Lee. I would put it oh. to you, Lee. To, oh, sorry. You want to continue? Go ahead. No, no, I wanted to let you respond, and I want to make just one more point, if it's okay. All right. Lee, that's just uh, hot air. Whether it's from Clinton on the left or the Hawks on the right, it's hot air. There isn't going to be a showdown with Russia. Look at the pattern of how and when the U.S. actually goes to war. They would only 
go into Iraq after they spent 10 years making sure Iraq had no way to retaliate. They were trying to set it up in Syria likewise. They would only do such, have a no-fly zone, and then just bombard the country as long as there was no means to retaliate. Same with Libya. They only do turkey shoots. And even if you look at the pattern, the U.S. has never really had a war where their backs are against the wall kind of thing. Going back to the Second World War, they, had to, they didn't have to. They chose to go in when really the deed was all done and dusted between Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia. There's no history of actually having to go into a full-on conflict that would risk anything for United States power. They would never actually risk an open conflict with Russia. Right, and uh, I, I'm in total agreement. Uh, I'm not a pacifist, uh, as you mentioned, if we're being attacked. For example, I, my theory is that uh, when we got uh, jets, you know, plunged through our uh, Twin Towers in uh, New York City, that the action of going into Iraq, which was based on lies, and uh, Colin Powell delivering a very uh, effective uh misleading speech. I'm not sure if he had the right intelligence or not, or whether he was part of the manipulation uh, of that administration. But I thought it was very interesting timing that here we were, uh, George W. Bush is, you know, arguably uh, put in a terrible position. And so what do we do? It's like we went and retaliated because I think the country was calling for something to happen, and that is why they had to concoct their lives to uh, convince Congress to support the Iraq war. Well, it's an interesting thing, because uh, Colin Powell, it later came out um, that, you know, when he was, you know, before the U.N. giving the presentation about uh Weapons in the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, you know, looked at the so-called intelligence he was being asked to uh, to vouch for, and said, "This is the biggest bullshit I've ever seen." Right. So, right. Uh, and and he's later come out, you know, in a controlled way to say that he, I, I think that he regretted being a part of that. Um, but really, you know, the 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 plan to attack Iraq was. Uh, years in the planning. Um, we yeah. spoke earlier about PNAC, the plan for a new American century. And uh, it was just one of a list of several countries that was part of the, the global chessboard. So, uh, you know, at first the U.S. said, yeah, we have to go into Afghanistan because that's where, uh, that's where Osama bin Laden's cave is, where he was able to defy uh, the 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 hundreds of billions of dollars of intelligence in the most protected air, airspace in the world from a cave. Um, right. And, uh, and, and then uh, all of a sudden, you know, Saddam has weapons of mass destruction. It was, it was a redirect. Uh, all the attention and, uh, and was kind of redirected towards preventing anything like that from happening again. Yes, they connected the dots they being the administration. And I think one of the grand architects of all of that was uh, Rumsfeld. And I think Rumsfeld was, aside from the president, calling a lot of shots 
And uh, I think that uh, when we went into Iraq with this ridiculous, I mean, you want to talk about blunders in foreign policy, and I get so pissed when President Obama is second-guessed and characterized as as an awful uh, president in terms of foreign relations. How in the world could any halfway intelligent world leader, leader like George W. Bush honestly think that he could go establish a democracy in the Middle East? That is just mind-boggling. It's, it's beyond insulting. Nobody thought, even at the time, I remember feeling like, God, we must do something. you know. And then the whole rhetoric about, oh, uh, Saddam Hussein is, is supporting terrorists and, and the dots were connected. And then the whole Iraqi freedom, I mean, give me a break. If there's anybody responsible for ISIL, ISIS, it's George W. Bush, because he defragmented that area and caught and the way it was handled, uh, the, the breaking up of the Iraqi army and the uh, incarcerating who turned out to be leaders of ISIS in the same Camp Bucca and then letting them all go free. These are clearly, uh, clearly negligent acts and incompetent acts by our country. But Lee, oh, Lee I think, what? I think... Sorry, yeah, Shane. Uh, let me just get in here a second. What if not about building democracy in a country in the Middle East? Is, under Obama's watch, the U.S. military doing in the Middle East? Oh, Isn't well, the whole idea mean... of Syria about bringing democracy... To Syria. Well, I believe that uh, our intention, and this is where I think the U.S. needs to, we need to ask ourselves, are we going to go and intervene in Syria, which my opinion is the only reason we, we are there in the first place is trying to uh, stop leading and the 250,000 uh, citizens that Assad has gassed, tortured, and murdered. That's Lee, the only... uh, Lee, la last week uh, when you called, I asked you to have a look at uh, Assad um, because of the plethora of information that, that suggests um, that uh, it, it wasn't, in fact, Assad who had anything whatsoever to do with uh gassing his own people. In fact, there's a lot of evidence to to show that, you know, it was uh, done on the part of uh, Saudi intelligence groups uh, and that all of this was designed to demonize Assad when he had absolutely no uh, no reason, no motivation, no uh, no inkling to, to hurt his own people. Um, and just getting back to Obama for just a moment, um, I think... I think you're in danger here a little bit of, of letting Obama off the hook, as, as Neil was uh, moving to say. Um, the, the NATO intervention into Libya in, in 2011, a complete disaster for that country, a humanitarian disaster that uh, we're seeing the results of today. Uh, this was facilitated by the Obama administration. Uh, the the growth 
of, uh, of ISIS or ISIL or whatever you want to call it, um, is in part due to the unleashing of, of those mercenaries and forces that were brought in uh, to Libya, along with NATO, working literally alongside NATO uh, to... Al-Qaeda. Uh, yeah, to, um, to overthrow Gaddafi, to uh, completely uh, destroy the infrastructure of Libya, uh, to kill many thousands of people, um, and and it's a it's a big piece of this puzzle, I think. I want to, I want to know if you guys and thank you for that. I am going to check. I looked at your site briefly, but I will definitely go back and and read in depth about what you're saying because it is very fascinating. But don't don't you uh, gentlemen buy into the fact that you know the his the, the the timeline of what has happened in the last four years with this civil war originated, if I don't, if I'm not mistaken, with very civil protests that uh, turned into violent uh, protests involving the, I'll say the word, execution of the protesters by uh, military under Assad. So I don't know how Assad gets uh, a free pass here. Uh, I, it seems like he was trying to suppress uh, opposition to his authority and the military and police, etc., were acting under his uh, his his leadership. That's not actually what happened. No, there were some small protests in the south of the country near the Jordanian border. Um, very small, though. There were actually counter protests in favor of the government, in which there were up to three or four million people on the streets of Damascus at any one time pro-Assad demonstrations. And what started to happen was groups unknown set off bombs, car bombs at these protests, and many pro-Assad people were killed. And then it was portrayed in the West as protesters against Assad being killed by the Assad government. It was a complete reversal of the two. Well, just to give a little background to, to the, the structure of what was going on in, in Syria, We've got an article right now on SOT, um, the best of the web, and it's, it's actually a collection of three articles by Dmitry Orlov. And near the end of the article, he gives a really concise breakdown of the color revolution script. And the way he, he breaks it down into five, um, five phases, basically. And the first is to basically create a protest movement in another country. So this is where you get together a bunch of people with a cause that are anti-government. So they, there's two images that have to be presented. There's the victim image for the protesters, so what they, their grievance against the, the uh, government in question, and then, of course, the, uh, the dictator evil image of the regime or government in question. Now, what happens next is, is to, to uh, escalate these protests to the point where um, – there's basically a disturbance in public order. So that's where all these protests get large enough that, uh, you know, streets get shut down, the, the police have to come out. Now, what happened in Syria is, there, like Neil was saying, there were some, some protests going on because there like, had been a, a great drought in Syria, and there were some, some actual problems in the country with the, the way, I mean, things just couldn't operate in an ideal way because of this drought. And, of course, you know, every government has problems, too. So there were, there were some, some grievances among portions of the population. Now, what happened with these protests is that 
they did become violent. They became violent immediately, and they became violent on the part of the protesters themselves. Now, and so basically it was protests were violent protests. They weren't nonviolent protests. There may have been some nonviolent protests to start out with. They became violent, and several, um, several police and Syrian army personnel were killed. And not just in protests, some of them were targeted and 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 slaughtered. So there were there were um, movements of troops to these zones where these where this uh, unrest was happening, and they were targeted. And entire squads of of these well, I don't know how many are in squad, but like twenty, thirty people, uh, Syrian soldiers would be killed at a time, captured and killed. Now what this was, this is this is this. This is your standard color revolution, like what was going on, what happened in Libya, where this is manufactured from the outside. This wasn't a grassroots violent movement. Like like Neil and Ilan were saying about Libya, we wouldn't have what's going on in Syria without certain things that were going on in Libya. When 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 Libya went down, a lot of the weapons that were provided to the so-called rebels in Libya got transferred through through Libya, uh-huh. through Turkey, into Syria. Through Benghazi. through Benghazi. This is the dark, dirty secret of Benghazi. They won't just spit, spell out. And uh-huh. the reason why there's this aura of conspiracy around it, but no one will actually say it in, in the U.S. media, mm-hmm. is because it was the, the means through which the CIA was moving on the personnel and the weapons yes. on into, into Syria next. So what... So uh, in the in the West, the impression we get and the the image that's presented is that Assad was deliberately attacking his own people and and attacking a nonviolent protest movement. What actually was happening was that uh, perhaps a, an initially initially legitimate series of protests, which happened in any country, was hijacking all over the Middle yeah. at that time. The yeah. so-called Arab Spring. Yeah. So, which was essentially hijacked by a bunch of foreign mercenaries that were sent in deliberately to cause this kind of situation, to cause oh. unrest and to and to cause chaos. And so that's that's how it started. And then, of course, the the government of Syria seeing this, it's what they can see what's going on, and they will perceive it as basically a foreign invasion, because these guys that were coming in were terrorists. These were Al Qaeda, Muslim Brotherhood. Um, foreign mercenaries that came in with the express purpose of killing people and and destabilizing the country in order to take out the government and to basically just look at what U.S. foreign policy is. They want Assad gone and they want Syria split up into like five different regions so that it will not be a sovereign nation anymore. They want right. it to be a totally backwards uh, vassal state. That's a fascinating... And so, yeah. That's fascinating. What's that? I'm very- very, very fascinating because it's the total antithesis. And I mean, I don't. I, I mean, I don't just. You know, I'll, I don't listen to MSNBC. I mean, I go and search out different uh, sources of information, but I am definitely going to follow this up because it turns, it flips the whole thing around to me. Absolutely, yeah. and that's what's what, so what, maddening about it. Yeah, I was going to ask you in regard to Benghazi, and I know I'm kind of segueing it. Well, first of all, let me ask you this. Do you think we're better off in our foreign relations in general with Obama or when Bush uh, was in office um, just prior and after 9-11? It's oh, no, a continuation uh, to me, Lee, like from, from the uh, Bush administration. 
you know, it, it, there is no break, there is no change in foreign policy. It's just a continuation and an expansion of you know what happened under Bush. That's why you know I I also have uh, an issue with with um, with Obama because you know there wasn't any fundamental change uh, in a positive direction. It was just a furthering. And when you look at Libya, yeah, that was all you know. That was all Obama and Clinton, and yeah, you know, what what happened there was just a, a massive atrocity. Uh, that was a you know one of the points that I was going to bring up earlier. Um, and so yeah, I don't I don't see you know foreign relations uh, changing under Obama. I mean, when he started out, you know, he was given the Nobel Peace Prize right off the bat when he hadn't done anything. And right. you know that that was just an appalling thing to see, and then and then to see what he did afterwards too. That was, it's um, it's kind of it's maddening. Yeah, I'm not as I'm I'm, I'm um, curious about po- the point made that as evil or as horrific as he appeared to be, Saddam Hussein had Iraq in check, and there probably wouldn't be the expansion of, you know, uh, ISIS and ISIL and the dis- disarray uh, in that in that territory as there is today if he was still in power. Exactly. Yeah. They would be better off. And Iraqis have said as much themselves. Right. So, right. The, and, I think, um, thing, Lee, the thing for you to get your head around is the idea that the president does not decide anything, especially in foreign policy. Um, I can't encourage you enough to, to read more of the articles we post on SoftNet because we're trying to give people a broader context, especially historical. And you right. see for yourself the patterns, although they do change, they change slowly, they change over, they change over time. And in the interim, new people are elected but it, nothing changes at all. I mean, let's, uh, one issue, for example, Obama was determined Guantanamo would close. I mean, I believe right. him too. Why not? It, it's still open. It's not. Right. It, it's still there. They're still torturing people. Uh, <laughs> Afghanistan. I believe, too, oh, yes, you want to get the troops out of Afghanistan. The latest is that they're going to stay until 2021. Yeah, they're adding troops. Even yeah. if we give him good intentions and he would like to see that himself it appears that he has no control over what can and cannot be done so there you don't have to ascribe any evil intentions on his part he might have the best intentions in the world but he can't do anything about it Right. and this is the, the, the story of the US situation, this is why we're talking about revolution today is it viable in the US, what kind of form could it take because it's yeah. such it's such a such a peculiar situation where yes, more and more Americans are coming on board, whether they're left or right, or whether they never thought about politics at all before, and they're saying something is not right. Right. Yeah. If you look at the P five uh, plus one negotiations uh, with Iran, what what I thought regarding Netanyahu is you got Israel with two hundred atomic warheads. You got Netanyahu addressing our Congress, set up behind the president's back, and I'm thinking they're not they're not threatened now 
in a desperate way to do something. They see, with the sanctions being lifted, the arms race that can occur and lead to a stockpile of atomic weapons in the future. And I think that's why Netanyahu came out and pleaded, and still is, that the Iran deal needs to be uh, terminated. Well, I think that uh, I don't think Iran was a threat at all, like uh, to start out with. Um, so I think the whole narrative around that was just bogus to begin with. That the sanctions didn't have anything to do with with Iran being an actual threat. But let's just let's just say it outright: there is no country on earth yeah. that is a threat to the United States of America. And there hasn't been since 1947 when the National Security Act was passed and the U.S. became the largest military force on Earth. Nobody is threatening. Nobody is a threat. There's no such thing. They're called threats Mm -hmm. to keep U.S. support for the war machine going, for this project of global dominance. And in the case of Iran in particular, it seems that, uh, you know, it was used on the part of the U.S. to have leverage over Iran. Uh, Iran is, uh, has always considered itself, or at least recently especially, to be sovereign and, uh, and, and doesn't want to have this geopolitical uh, uh, alliance in the way that Saudi Arabia has with the U.S. Furthermore, when you have Netanyahu you know, uh, going on about Iran, uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, Iran really interferes with with uh, Israel's regional will to power. Uh, it, it's it you know it's allied itself with Syria. It's one of Syria's biggest you know backers, um, and Hezbollah, which is you know politically uh, a force to be and militarily a, a small force to be reckoned with. So, uh, insofar as Israel is uh, in, you know, has any kind of influence, uh, and it certainly does over the U.S. policy, um, you know, it, it's let's keep Iran um, uh, demonized. But uh, let's have one more comment from you, Lee, and, and then I think we're going to uh, move on into the discussion a little bit. Well, I want to thank you, number one, and uh, I'm really going to sit down and through your information on your website. I've bookmarked it. And then number two, I think, uh, and forgive me for not getting the names, but the gentleman that talked about keeping the the war machine going, uh, I I looked at our some numbers on our budget for defense and just how mammoth that is and how socialistic it is. So there is a bit of a double standard when people get all freaked out about socialism and then we look at two programs like Social Security and our defense, which everybody uh, contributes to without any kind of uh, freedom to not. And so it's just funny to me uh, that when it comes to something like health care, that kind of a social or free tuition, those programs get poo-pooed and demonized, yet our military budget and our Social Security, uh, which are two integral parts of our country, I never get questions. So thank you, guys. I'm going to listen to the rest yeah, of your show. It's fantastic, and uh, love the conversation. Very informative, and I feel like I learned a few things today, so thank you. 
Great. Thanks for calling, Lee. We hope you Thanks, Lee. Yeah, yeah, thanks for calling, Lee. All right, Take man. Care. You guys Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Lee should also check back on some of the older shows as well, especially in recent weeks. Yes. Uh, we've had this discussion in other contexts, big picture stuff. What is the U.S. In, in, in the large sweep of the last century? What's going on at the moment? We discussed Iran in particular, Syria. What is Russia doing or not? All these things, Lee, you can listen to on earlier shows of The Truth Perspective and also our other show, Behind the Headlines, where myself and he, my co-host there, Joe Quinn, I've looked at these the things in detail. had with... Uh, uh, the Moretti's, that was an excellent show. Moriarty's, yeah. The, yeah, Moriarty's yeah. Um, on Libya. I, um, what happened in Libya, that that was an eye-opener. Um, yeah, well, just for, for Lee, if you're still listening, um, today, if you look on the SOT page, we've got two articles. They, they should be on the main page, and they've both got Benghazi in the title. Now, if you go to either of those articles, you'll find a link to the full transcript of the interview with the Moriarty's. And it's also got a link to the audio of the show. So really, uh, I'd recommend checking that one out. It's amazing. Like the, the stuff that you'll hear there will just blow you away. Uh, the Moriarty's were in Libya while everything was going down in 2011. And um, just the, the stuff that they have to say and what they witnessed, um, it's, it's mind-boggling what was really going on there. Well, um, you know, the, in terms of uh, other uh, commenters these days, and, uh, um, writers who are uh, talking about the situation in the U.S. in particular and, and uh, just getting back to uh, the idea of the need of some kind of revolt, uh, be, it, um, be it some kind of uh, activism uh, or otherwise. Um, Chris Hedges has been a, uh, a very vocal and, and strong um, voice uh, in the U.S. Uh, for the rising tide of fascism. And uh, I think, Meg, that you um, had found some interviews uh, that he had been a part of that kind of illustrate his, uh, his thoughts on the subject and, um, and the problems that we're facing. Uh, yeah, the interview... Yeah, Chris Hedges recently had an interview with uh, Abby Martin. Uh, it's titled "War Propaganda and the Enemy Within." So he, within that, he talks about the American myths of uh, war and revolt. And we have several clips. Uh, the first one's a pretty short one. Um, so we'll go ahead and either we reconfigure our relationship to each other and to the planet in a radical way, or these forces. Uh, which in you know theological terms are forces of death, will extinguish what hope we have for life. It, it's that dire, it's that dramatic, as anyone who reads climate change reports understand. Um, and this is the folly of empire. This is how empires destroy themselves and always have. I mean, it's how the Roman Empire, you expand militarily beyond your capacity to sustain yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's precisely what we're doing and what we've done. And the consequences of it, uh, politically, economically, socially, culturally, and finally environmentally are catastrophic. So uh, I think we wanted to bring in that clip uh, just to talk about the kind of the relationships that we have with each other and um, and you know how we understand uh, the forces of empire and the the consequences that that has. 
yeah, interestingly, he he did bring up uh, climate change, and you know, he talks about the fall of the Roman Empire, and you know, it's it's we see these things happen where um, you know, there is this relationship between, uh, or there's it looks like there's this relationship where you know the Earth is also responding in a way when you know there is so much chaos uh, happening on the planet. And we do need to um, evaluate re- or re-evaluate, you know, the um, all the things that you know we kind of take in, um, and you know that that includes you know some of the very basic things that we understand about uh, what's happening in the Middle East and you know and the things that we're told. Um, and the I don't if uh, I don't, did anybody have any other comments on that first clip. You know, Shana, that that reminded me of a a quote by Andrew Lobachowski uh, from his book, Political Panorology, actually. Um, And he says, when bad times arrive and people are overwhelmed by an excess of evil, they must gather all their physical and mental strength to fight for existence and protect human reason. The search for some way out of the difficulties and dangers rekindles long-buried powers of discretion. Such people have the initial tendency to rely on force in order to counteract the threat. They may, for instance, become trigger-happy or dependent upon armies. And then Lobachevsky says something else. He says that slowly and laboriously, however, they discover the advantages conferred by mental effort, improved understanding of the psychological situation in particular, better differentiation of human characters and personalities, and finally, comprehension of one's adversaries so um it's very interesting that he he's gotten into the psychology of of revolution of uh of recognizing two paths perhaps that uh that people can go down and recognizing the the straits that we're in collectively indeed this reminds me of a study in some other context but nevertheless it touched on or rather it dealt with two primary traits or two categories that they notice in the subjects. It was actually to do with tattoos and people who choose to tattoo themselves. So it's not really relevant to our discussion. Nevertheless, what they were getting at was the difference, the distinction that could be made between a proactive form of rebelliousness and a reactive form. Um, Lobachevsky there, his description is, in general, people will first encounter a reaction. I'm mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore, and you reach for the gun. But then reality hits, and you actually find that it's not so easy. Um, and the the labor of understanding the situation takes you to the end goal, I love that, of understanding your adversary. Who is doing these things? Why are they doing them? What is the scope of their activities? Just the act of, of, of working out the questions you have, that is a beautiful form of rebelliousness. It's probably the purest form. Mm. I couldn't dig it up any more than that. But the, part of the problem, though, is that that's a trend. So your first reaction is anger and to react and ideally, or in most people, in sane people, they'll end up at the place where they expend mental effort. 
rather than just react physically. The problem is that there will always be a large swathe of people who don't get beyond just reacting. Mm-hmm. They're practically reaction machines. React, react, react. Um, here, it's hard to, in a way, it's often hard to identify them because they may be the people you see in Occupy Wall Street groups or in the Black Lives Matter groups. But they may also be people who are regular, you know, regular citizens. They're not involved in any kind of progressive, in quotes, activism. But they're not... Uh, they're not taking stock of the situation and thinking, if they're thinking at all, what's really going on here? What's happening to them is their illusion about how things were, that America is great and that America means the best for the world and that we're just the bestest. Simple. If they feel that illusion is threatened, they don't question it and go, okay, but what is the real story then? That is the only story they'll ever know, and they will react until their deaths and the deaths of many around them. You're talking about the loss of the idea of that that would cause them to lash out? Uh, yes, or just, just, just the threat, the feeling of, of, of the world as they understood it. It's threatening it when seems- it's no longer. It, 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 they they don't even come to an insight where they go, uh, like uh, unlike Lee there who goes, whoa, that was interesting. I, I see what you're going with that. Okay, I can, I can start to take that on board. There would be others who, they would never have that moment where they go, oh, that's insight. You, you couldn't even have this conversation with them. Mm-hmm. Just the feeling that all is right with the world when America is bestest and we live in the illusion we're the best and so on. It's, it's just a if they just feel that that's threatened. They, there are large ways of people who will never advance beyond purely reacting. Um, this is something that everyone needs to, to, to keep in mind, um, especially when they are thinking of a better world and what they could do to make it better um there are just so many people out there who will not go there with you well to me it seems like that that's the way society's headed is the loss of those ideas so we'll have some people who will protest peacefully we'll have some people who won't um but it seems like that's where we're headed with everything we're seeing with putin there has to be a loss um for americans as a whole seeing how a true leader behaves and uh, takes care of terrorism as opposed to the way we were doing it. Um, so you're saying that the likelihood of there being a larger revolt because of it is pretty slim because of that. that would, uh, the idea that Americans are exceptional and they're going to hold on to that belief until they die kind of thing. Does that make sense? Uh, yes, basically. It, it's an extremely tall order because as Jonathan phrased it, this is so hardwired into the American psyche. I mean, it, 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 uh, it's a couple hundred years old, the whole idea of manifest destiny. Um, it's, uh, it just seems like such a tall order that you would have a situation where there's 
a majority of people who can pro- progress to that point where they're able to t- they're able to actually take on board, take nature, take stock of who their adversary is. You know. Well, I think um, what Lobachevsky's describing. Or go ahead, Meg. Oh, I'm good. Okay. What what Lobachevsky is describing is basically this natural process. So all things being equal, you know, things just continuing as they are. This is kind of the way things happen. And the way he describes it, it's just cycles. So we cycle between what he calls, you know, these good times and bad times. So just the most oppressive pathocracy you can think of. And then, um, and then things fall apart. Now, so when thinking about revolutions, that's the image that comes to mind is that there's two possibilities for a revolution, one where incremental changes are made for the better, which are very difficult, which take a long time, lots of planning, um, a ton of information, knowledge, and awareness of what the current contingencies are and what can be done with them. That's, what we, that's the path that we see Russia on today, is making those changes step by step. Now, the other kind of revolution is where everything falls apart because there can't be anything new if old things don't fall apart in a sense. And the only way that happens in these natural processes is for this just complete um, chaos to happen. Now, this is, the, this is the way I see the U.S. going, is that things will just get so bad and that it just happens. And there won't be that, that, um, that group of people, enough people that can see it, that, that just, it just comes to them naturally. There will be the, the people that are just so entrenched in their American mindset or just their human nature that it just doesn't happen. Now, but the, the thing that Lobachevsky adds into the equation is something that's never done before, and that would be a government, if a society could learn the things that he talks about in the book about these things that would otherwise come naturally, but only after a hard, long experience and a long time, this, this, um, this knowledge about personality types and psychological situations and then the nature of the leaders, like Lobachevsky eventually gets to that, if that was presented to people by, by a, a society, a government that actually knew about it, that may be able to you know, create some kind of new process that we haven't experienced yet. Who knows, though, because it's never happened before. But uh, without well, one, that, I think we're we're just going to have the same thing that we've always had. Yeah, one other. Ahead, um, yeah, one other point on on that too on uh, Lopchewski's quote is so he talks about when somebody does identify, you know, the true threat to humanity that you know they do uh, their 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 minds basically can expand and uh, elaborate and see more clearly and. You know, it's kind of uh, an opening up, and uh, I was thinking about that because you know there are these uh, different groups who do see um, you know the United States behavior as as bad and evil, but they do they you know it's it's like Niall was saying earlier, uh, you know it's just a continued reaction. So you know it has to be that. Um, the process of really truly seeing, you know, this that means a a, a a more complete breakdown, I guess, of uh, all the different aspects of the ideology. You know, if, if you still believe in the American way and the American system, but you think um, Obama's evil or you think uh, Bush is evil, then you know it, 
that can still be a limiting factor uh, that that can keep you from um, for you know reaching that that clarity. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, it's a very interesting thing to to kind of uh, observe all of these things that, as they're happening, and you know, as as we were discussing, um, actually, I, you know, I wanted to get back to uh, the whole um, kind of uh, thing that we're seeing in Ferguson, for instance, because mm-hmm. I thought that was very interesting. Uh, you know how Black Lives Matter, in one sense, has a very legitimate um, kind of call to uh-huh. action. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and on the other, we do know, for instance, that fellows like George Soros that Shane was um, mentioning earlier uh, have a an influence, let's say, financially. Um, and you know, you, you read stories about a um, a militant streak running within Black Lives Matter, for instance. Um, and and so I guess my question is, um, can we tease out the truth there about um, to what extent uh, these groups are being co-opted or not towards, um, towards uh, revolution or legitimate protest or... Uh, acting in ways that aren't in their self-interest. Do do we have some kind of grasp on on the the big picture we're seeing there? Because just to add one more point, like you know, it, it was pointed out that a lot of the events, for instance, in Baltimore, um, were kind of designed to appear uh, in certain ways when some of the violence seemed to be facilitated by acts of the, the police under the mayor of Baltimore. So anyway, I'm I'm just kind of looking at that whole mm-hmm. uh, situation and and wondering if we can. And uh, can I jump in just for a second too? And um, so when I was bringing it up earlier, uh, I was kind of thinking about you know where my point went you know kind of astray, and I I think I was um, I guess looking at because I was talking about you know this influence that can act on, you know, these two sides, the, um, you know, the nationalists uh, or, you know, confederates or patriots or, um, you know, uh, people who might be racist or, you know, et cetera, and versus uh, those in the Black Lives Matter um, in, and in the black community. Um, and, you know, I think... Um, where we see the uh, influence play out like within black matter uh, black lives matters is largely in um uh, prov- provoking in a sense um you know this continual violence towards them uh this uh manufacturing of a um uh, I, I guess a, a perspective that you know the that there's uh, these violent looters or um, um, rioters, and you know, and it's it's this insertion, I think, um, that we might find where that influence uh, comes from. Uh, I, you know, I, I definitely do think that um, 
the outrage that uh, that community feels is completely justified. And all you know, it, human beings should be outraged. You know, um, all people. Uh, you know, it's it's a um, you know it's, it's a horrible situation that we see playing out, and um, yeah, it, it, we see these dynamics. I think you know all over. Um, you know, and and uh, yeah. So uh, those those are just kind of my thoughts, and perhaps some little clarification. But if uh, if Niall had additional thoughts, I'd be interested too. I do. Here we go. You ready? <laughs> the very the very fact that uh, as softnet editors, the first terminology you guys reach for is looters, rioters, militants, troublemakers. You haven't said gangbangers, but that's kind of the term that's floated out there too. Is an indicator that the dominant propaganda narrative coming from the top is working. We are here basically blaming the victims. The poorest, usually black, but the poorest in general in the U.S., their motives are questioned first. Why? Why is that? In the most general terms, what happened in Ferguson and Baltimore are healthy reactions. They are healthy. It's the society saying, wait, 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 no, no, I resist. I've had enough. In the most general terms, it's a healthy reaction. Now, yes, there have been a number of indications of foul play, of... Uh, very suspicious shootings of cops. Um, definitely some some play where there were guys brought in from a separate town to Ferguson and given some sort of free pass or allowed to, to do what they were doing while the cameras were rolling. Cameras moved away and the truncheons came in, the water cannons and, and so on. Um, and it's even murkier than that. There is also a sniper shooting of a cop, supposedly from someone on a rooftop that was blamed initially from being behind the protesters' line, but it actually came from behind the cops' line. They're speaking to somebody shooting, taking out cops in the middle of this, this situation, and the only thing you can take from that is that somebody wants to push things over the edge. My dad. My dad. Think, think, mm-hmm. This is the tactics we've seen abroad. Everything is brought to a head. There's already fighting on the streets. Tensions couldn't be any worse bringing the snipers. So the, the, don't get me wrong. And in terms of George Soros, yeah, there's some evidence. Take mm, his name out of it for a second. There is evidence of financing coming in who controls the money in the U.S.? It's Wall Street in general. You don't have to think of Soros. Of financing of opposition groups. That is not evidence that there's no justification for why people are reacting to the system. That's evidence of a system that is so, in, it's so insane and yet so methodical in the way it treats its own people. All that's about... 
how Assad treats his own people, how Gaddafi treats his own people. Well, how they treated their people is incomparable to how the U.S. population is treated. In fact, by its leaders. In fact, the Syrian uh, the Syrian protesters had several grievances that they were protesting about, and the Syrian government actually reacted to those and went along with them and said, "Okay, you want these." These guys that we've got in prison released, we'll, we'll, we'll release them. We'll do this. We'll do that. And they actually did all that. But that is, that's not playing the game right because the way a cover, color revolution works is that the government can't go along with what you want because that's not the purpose. The purpose isn't the stated purpose. So in Syria, the purpose wasn't these grievances that the protesters had. That was the pretext in order to, to exacerbate the violence and carry it to the next level. If you look at what the U.S. did, there were certain grievances. Those were not even acknowledged. They were totally ignored. And then you have the exact opposite happening where you have um, Asians provocateur or you've got police, police violence and just increased police violence. It's totally, it's totally opposite. Mm. I mean, there's no consideration whatsoever for what the people actually want. Whenever they even get a whiff of uprising, mm-hmm. um, whether it's inside the U.S. or in a country they would like to keep the status quo in outside the U.S., mm-hmm. the, they have perfected the neo-commentary system, the thing that Putin criticized the U.S. by gently suggesting, they, you know, we the Soviets tried this kind of thing, meddling in other countries, and look what it got us. However, the U.S. has had no challenger since World War II, and it has perfected, at least it has perfected its ability to manipulate people, mm-hmm. to get in there right away. Mm-hmm. And for sure, they're going to be agent provocateur already mm-hmm. after this last 18 months, two years of the, black, the new black civil rights movement. Um, we definitely saw it also in the Occupy Wall Street movement. Mm-hmm. But but don't let that completely block the realization that the only reason such movements took root mm-hmm. was because mm-hmm. a, a substantial, still a minority, but a portion of people cooperated. They, they did something that's so antagonistic to the system as it is in the U.S., where it's, it's a kind of a, a fakey sense of cohesiveness. The society isn't really cohesive. It's cohesive on the flimsiest ground, which is that America is the greatest and all these other myths. And, and uh, they find strength through our military. You know, whenever you mention the military to your body or sports, you feel a rapport with him. But th- that's just, that's, it's so shallow. That, that's kind of the extent of it for a lot of Americans. So what they are trying to keep is this atomization that's already in place the society of free individuals, and they detest, they instinctively react to groups cohesively forming together. Mm. And I wouldn't say they're terrified of this power. No, it's more pragmatic for them. They understand, as a matter of science, because of all the studying and all the manipulation, all the perfecting they've done in this kind of area, that as soon as something arises like that, okay, we need to get people in here, you're going to pretend to be the leader of this movement, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. And it's not even necessarily 
master conspiratorial plan. It's they have mechanisms in place where it just happens by default now. They don't even need to micromanage a situation. They might do that in the newsroom, so to speak. Not necessarily in the newsroom of any one news channel, but there is probably sort of an operations center kind of for any one sphere of activity or there's some kind of coordination. But for the most part, they don't even need to, um, you know, make absolutely sure that this is going to go our way or that absolutely sure that this person is going to say the right thing because they have, they have, uh, I keep thinking of Putin's quote. Uh, he's talking to the press just after Crimea has agreed to return to Russia. And this is the beginning of the backlash from Washington. And he just throw, gives a throwaway comment. And he says, you know, sometimes I don't know what they're, I don't know what they're thinking over there across the pond. It's almost like they see the whole world as a laboratory and we're all the rats in the maze. Mm-hmm. And he's speaking to the mindset of the real ruling structure in the U.S. And internally inside the U.S., it, we're seeing play out what to date has really only taken place abroad. And this is where the idea that we're, we're suggesting of a color revolution happening within the U.S., uh, we may be seeing elements of it. The thing I would bring home to people, though, is uh, I would encourage them to, to, to support, at least in principle, groups of their fellow Americans basically saying no. They, too, are sick of the state of affairs. That's the basic message they're saying. They may not be able to articulate it well. The primary concern of the black maybe we're getting shot on a daily basis here. Just Just support them in that. Of course, that doesn't extend to supporting no matter what, but support the principle of the thing mm-hmm. and be aware that they too can be manipulated as you have been. Um, well, I don't think that they have a particular plan as to where this is going. Mm-hmm. I think they manage it as it unfolds, like everything else. Mm-hmm. Um I'm sure they have all sorts of contingencies. Remember, these people were pretty much perfecting how to get a mind-controlled patsy in an assassination situation back in the 50s. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the technology is available to them. <coughs> the ex- the ex- accumulated, under- uh, accumulated information about how people work, how, they, how their minds think. Uh, is available to them and they are such a different psychology that they don't hesitate to treat us like rats in a maze. Well, you know, there there are questions that uh, came up in my mind as you were saying that, Neil, um, because it seems that so much of whatever revolutionary fervor uh, that we may see that we would probably see uh, is being induced uh, by the various things that the federal government is doing. Um, we recently had an article by John Whitehead of the Rutherford Institute on SOC. I'm not sure if it's still a best of the web or not, um, 
The article was called Things Are Getting Scary, Global Police, Pre-Crime, and the War on Domestic Extremists, where basically there are laws being implemented uh, in cahoots with uh, certain organizations within the UN uh, that will create this kind of um, local policing infrastructure in the U.S. Uh, that are combined with these fusion centers that are keeping tabs on individuals. And anyone who uh, speaks out against the government or is aligned with a, uh, an independently thinking organization, for instance, um, is basically going to be put on a list. And... And when you read something like that, you have to think, well, you know, that's going to cause a reaction because those people who are aware enough to, to speak out against the government are also going to be aware enough to realize that they are now on a list and are considered public enemy number one and that there are uh, things in place to effectively keep them from uh, doing the natural thing, which is to resist in some form or to be vocal, or to organize. So, you know, and you couple that with the idea that uh, 2 billion or whatever number of rounds of hollow point ammunition was purchased by the government. You hear this every so often. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, you have to wonder if if a revolution, uh, even if it's not completely thought through, but is it in some way being... Uh, created, uh, that they know that these actions will be, um, will create some kind of response and they, and they're kind of preparing for it and nothing, nothing would make them happier. Maybe the, maybe the really, you know, virulent psychopaths who are in power than to have several million people try and resist and and they'll they'll throw in their military who hasn't had a you know a second thought about the whole thing and mow them down. Okay, that's a lot of ifs though. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a it, but nevertheless it's it's a it's a horrific but likely scenario, given what's going on. The thing is though, do they intend this, or is it a consequence of what they've always done to date? See, I take issue with the idea that they're deliberately inducing revolution. I think it's more like a, a, a response to the fact that the overall, the, the American organism, the 300 million people, are starting to react. Even, even so though they basically, never thought of... Yeah? So basically, I mean, while... You know, there is this uh, this energy, you know, coming about. They're basically trying to just distract or um, paint people as um, yeah, evil or you know, evil doers or, or or the like. You know, it's um, I I I do see what you're saying with you know that that you know what's happening here in the United States. And, you know, whatever machinations that may be going on in the background, it is uh, very different from, you know, color revolutions uh, that the United States has played a part in overseas. And, you know, I think that that, you know, does, uh, 
Yeah, that makes sense. They're trying to retain and expand control over as many people, over the minds of many people as possible. It's always been this. This is what it's always been. And they've, they've come to the extent now where they have, well, it's changing. I mean, they they have, not just in the U.S., but internationally, they have done so well for so long, and they have got so many people where they want them, afraid, broken up, detached from reality, and enmeshed in, in, in their vision of reality. They don't want anything to interfere with that. So I don't no, I don't think they're even consciously aware that that's what they're trying to do. You know what I mean? They might have all this, this is psychological course. stuff. Basically, yeah, it's it's. I think of these people as um, basically as part of a hive mind. There might be some sh- some some shared understanding, but so much of this would never get written down on paper. It's uh, this subterranean, it's a subconscious thing that's coming up. It, it's not even, and here we get into where is this directed from? I mean, and it, drives, it drives a lot of American commentators nuts because on the one hand, they understand the U.S. does evil things, but they're like, but it can't be my government because where are they? Who are these people? So it's the U.N. or it's a secret government somewhere else or, you know, but it is essentially a U.S. structure. It's a U.S. and here I mean in ideological terms, not just in, in terms of military power and economic power. It's uh, yeah, it's it's the same as it's always been, and it's reached a point where it's literally breaking apart. And their reaction to that is to patch it up. New ideas are coming in, new ways of seeing things. Every time Putin does something, a mirror is held up. It effectively allows people to look at the mirror and go, oh, that's what the U.S. is actually doing. And this, this, at some unconscious level, the people ruling the U.S. understand that this is, this is really bad. Not so much because people might like Putin for doing X or Y, but because they instinctively realize that their grip on the minds of people globally, but especially in the U.S., is at risk of being shattered. Well, that may be a a great point at which to bring the show to a close. Uh, this is a, a very um, complicated uh, topic certainly, that that goes in all sorts of different directions. Um, Were there any other points, Shane, Meg, William, that you wanted to make today? Oh, I think think we're good, or I'm good over anyway. Yeah, me too. We're good. Excellent, I think. (laughs) Excellent. Well, in that case, I'd like to thank Jonathan... Kent and Lee, our callers, for calling in. I'd like to thank our chatters for chatting and keeping the web abuzz with comments about the show today. Just like to and remind thanks everyone. Thanks to Harrison that, and Neil for joining us. 
A big thanks to both of them. Good to be here. Great talking to you guys. Very lively and yeah, exciting comments. Tomorrow, don't forget to tune in to Behind the Headlines at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time next Friday at 10 a.m. We have the Health and Wellness Show. And until then, everybody, thanks for listening. Have a great week. Be safe. Be strong. Be wise. Take care. Take care. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.